Hi, I'm Daryl Wanzer Serrano. I'm Ariana Ruiz. I'm Renee Rocha. And this is Imagining Latinidades. Hello, everyone. Ariana here. Thanks so much for joining us today. And we're here recording the last symposium roundtable for the fall semester. It's been a wonderful whirlwind of intellectual awesomeness. So I'm really excited to be moderating this discussion and will try really, really hard to stay on mic because I tend to get in trouble for that. So um, this live roundtable is coming at the end of a day-long symposium in Iowa City, Iowa on Latina, Latino, Latinx, citizenship, and national belonging. With that said, I'm also joined by a fabulous group of scholars who I've personally learned so much from today. And this includes Suzanne Obler from John Jay College at the City University of New York, Jillian Baez at Hunter College, City University of New York, and Julie Avril Minnick from the University of Texas at Austin. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with our roundtable discussions, this offers an opportunity to really just have a conversation of not only our work and research, which we've done throughout the day as part of the Imagining Latinidades Symposium, but really ourselves within the field of Latina, Latino, Latinx studies. So here we're considering the experience of coming into the field of Latina, Latino, Latinx studies. Um, this might include what the field means to you, what it does can and should mean to our students, institutions, and the broader community at large. So lots of big ideas and themes to tackle with no one definite answer, but definitely with so much to learn and gain from your individual experiences and insights. Um, so we thank you in advance and are very appreciative of your willingness to share. Um, so I'd like to begin with what we've come to call the origins story question, which really we started to address in the fir first podcast recording um, and is how we've started off these roundtable discussions. Um, so the question is, when and how did you start doing Latina, Latino, Latinx studies? When did you get f uh, first get exposed to the field or learn that it existed? Um, how did the field affect how you do the work you do? So any one of those questions as sort of um, that entry point for this discussion of your origin story. And whoever would like to start um, can feel free to do so. I'll start. Uh, this is Jillian Baez here. Um, so my story starts by accident. Um, you know, I came into Hunter College, where I work now. I've come full circle, but I was an undergraduate there. Um, I came in as a transfer student. Um, and it was a very last minute transfer. We had a bit of a family crisis at home and um, I needed to transfer very quickly. Um, and what that meant was that there were very few classes that were open because this was a few weeks before the semester began. Um, and, you know, at Hunter, like many places, um, you know, you have your major courses, but you also have a number of general education courses you need to take. Um, and so one of the courses that... Um, you know, one of the buckets that I needed to fill had a course called Puerto Ricans, no, Puerto Rican History Before 1898. And if it filled like, you know, that particular, <laughs> uh, you know, area that I needed for general education and also was open, right? It was one of the few classes that had spaces in it. Um, so I entered the class. I was curious. I have to say, you know, I, I am Puerto Rican, but I did, I knew very little about Puerto Rican history outside of my own family's lived experiences. Um, and 
it just changed my world. Let's just say I took the course. It decolonized my mind. Um, it answered so many questions for me about, you know, my own origins and understanding the present, the, the present and understanding sort of um, how we ended up as Puerto Ricans in New York City. Um, and so, you know, after that, I decided to take the second part of the course, which was after 1898. <laughs> um, and next thing you knew, n- know, I was a minor and then I was a major. Um, and I have to be honest, as an undergraduate, you know, for me, I was just learning for learning's sake. I did not realize I could do anything with this as a career um, until I got to maybe the end of the junior, my junior year. And that same professor that I had taken the first course with had asked me, have you ever thought about going to graduate school? And I had said, no. I mean, there's nobody in my family who's gone to graduate school. That was not, I didn't even really know what that meant, to be honest. I was like, do you mean like a master's? Like, what, what is that? Um, and he had said, well, you know, we have this uh, Mellon program here that takes undergraduates and it prepares them um, pr- for the professoriate, right, to become professors, to go through the PhD process. So I said, okay, you know, I'll look into it. I applied, I interviewed, um, kind of half-hearted because I didn't really know what I was getting into, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I got into the program um, and started learning that there was a much larger field of Latino studies, right? So like many people, I entered this sort of through Puerto Rican studies um, and, you know, left going to graduate school at the University of Illinois. Um, The reason for that is that I knew I wanted to... I knew I wanted to do Latino studies, but there are very few programs where you can specialize in that. So for me, it was an option either of going into ethnic studies or going into communication, right, which was my other major. Um, and I ended up at Urbana-Champaign because I read this book called A Latina in Hollywood, right? It was the only one of the few at that particular time on Latinas and media. I turned it over, and there was this woman, Angie Valdivia, who was at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I had never heard of Urbana-Champaign. Same. Um, (laughs) And somehow, I don't know how, I had this crazy idea that I would just, like, call her. So I did. I looked her up, and I called her, and she was, like, so happy. She had never had a student reach out to her. Um, and so, you know, so we talked about graduate school and then next thing you know, a few years later, I would end up at Urbana-Champaign working with her. Um, so, so, you know, it was by accident, but I'm very grateful that it's all worked out this way. And I love that notion of accidents because it resonates so much with my own experience as well, where I didn't know the distinction between the MA or PhD, really. I was very fortunate that I had a a faculty member uh, out in Santa Cruz, Juan Poblete, who was like, I'm writing for you, but only if it's PhD programs. And I'm like, I guess I'm applying to PhD programs and I don't think I'm ready, (laughs) but okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really took that support from folks outside of that. And same, because I got the PhD in English at Urbana-Champaign as well. But I was like, I, I think I remember writing down champagne as like the alcoholic drink yeah. as opposed to <laughs> the way it actually is spelled because mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know where this is. All right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really interesting to hear. I guess I'll go next. I have a very different experience. I came to the States in, in the 1980s. And about two or three weeks after I got here, I was speaking to someone, and they said, oh, you seem to have an accent. Um, Where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from Peru. And they said, oh, so you're a Hispanic. And I said, a what? (laughs) And they said, a Hispanic, you know, like like the Puerto Ricans. I, I was living in New York, by the way. And I just thought, you know, I was embarrassed because I didn't know what Hispanic was I didn't 
think I was like the Puerto Ricans because I came from Peru, not Puerto Rico. And, you know, and I was embarrassed not to know anything about Puerto Rico other than, you know, that it was part of the United States. And so I thought I better learn about this. And so there was that. And at the same time, I found a job in the South Bronx working for an organization called the Institute for Puerto Rican Urban Studies. And um, yes, they did Puerto Rican things, but it was mainly an organization that trained social workers um, about their Latino clients. And we worked in teams. And there were about six of us who were researchers. And we would go in teams to, for a whole week with a group of social workers who were mainly African Americans and had been told by their job that they had to be there for a whole week learning about Latinos in the 80s. That kind of didn't go down very well with some of them because they wanted to know, for example, why they couldn't learn about African Americans. And... Um, But, you know, we talked about it, and as a result of that experience, I actually did research into the Puerto Rican experience, as well as all the other Latino groups, because we were teaching about Latino clients. Um, there wasn't very much information that we could find. In, in those days, it was, there was no computers, right? So, so it wasn't easy to, <laughs> to find. Um, and I ended up going to um, to get a, a PhD. Uh, I already had master's degree from, I had worked in Latin American studies and also in anthropology um, outside of the United States. Um, so I was getting a PhD and uh, I, I was looking for some program that had something on Hispanics, Latinos, something. And I looked in all the courses and I couldn't find very much on Hispanics, and in the School of Education at NYU, I found one class. And I thought, that's where I'm going to go. Um, it was at night, and so I started to do my PhD there. Eventually, I also worked with anthropology and historians, um, and I started to look into what does this term Hispanic really mean, And with them, the anthropologist and the historian, I was very interested in the language issue because of the white supremacist who was, um, he had an organization called the English Only Movement or the U.S. English Movement. His name was John Stanton. He was a horrible, politically horrible person. Um, and I wanted to know about the politics of language and how that fit into it. But that's how I eventually got into Latino studies, which I didn't really know was Latino studies. It was just my own interest in trying to figure out what does it mean to be told that you are like uh, another group and, and that that other group is actually a historical minority and you're just a regular old immigrant coming to the United but but you're both the same, but we weren't politically. So that's how it happened. And then I ended up going to teach 
um, in Rhode Island at Brown and became the first Latino studies professor. And that was an interesting experience because there were no Latino studies professors. There were a couple of Latino. I think Cynthia Garcia Cole was in the education department. Um, and there were a couple of people who were there. Which is really interesting. So as soon as you said that question about someone telling you, oh, are you Hispanic? I'm automatically thinking of the title to the, to the, the chapter, right? Like Hispanics is what they call us. So thinking about like just this, this link between that first moment of hearing that term and how it was really foundational to the type of work that you would go on to, to do and lead and, <laughs> and become such a prominent figure in the field. So that's, yeah, that's so interesting. I'm like, Julie, your turn. <laughs> so um, I think like, like many, my story is, is um, somewhat accidental. Um, I grew up uh, in rural South Georgia. Um, so growing up, um, everyone was black or white. Um, and I went to a majority black high school. And um, I understood from an early age um, that my friends were as smart as me um, and, you know, deserved to be going places, but they weren't getting tracked into college prep classes the way I was. They weren't being pushed to apply to college the way I was. Um, and I started asking a lot of questions about what that meant in terms of, of being white. Um, and so when I got to college, um, I signed up for ethnic studies classes, which happened the first time I took them happened to be Latino, Latino, Latinx studies classes. Um, and those classes were teaching me something I think that had, um, that I really needed to know about my own complicity in structures of racism, about white supremacy, about, um, the fact that I couldn't um, deny my implicatedness in it. So I kept taking these classes um, and ended up writing an honors thesis. And then my thesis advisor said to me, um, well, of course, you're going to go to grad school. Um, and I said, but the only thing I'm qualified to do is Latina, Latino, Latinx studies. And I'm not Latina. So I, I don't think I can do that. And she was like, you don't have to be. You can do it. Um, but I went into the workforce, basically, and um, then realized that that was not for me at all. Um, so after three years of kind of trying to work as a nonprofit fundraiser, um, I went back to my honors thesis advisor and I was like, yeah, I think I want to go to grad school. Um, so, so then I, I went to grad school. Um, but for me, um, the field really is about kind of dismantling um, or, or my entry point into the field has been about dismantling um, some really dangerous lies about, about myself that I was told um, that I don't want to keep participating in. Hmm. And I'm wondering, and this is just out of curiosity, I'm wondering, did you sort of now in hindsight, do you see that time in the workforce as necessary um, to that path towards graduate school? And Because I think sometimes, especially conversations that I've had with students, there is this um, sense of like, well, I need to go right away. I need to be applying now for it. But I'm wondering if that time in between offered some sort of reflection to that process. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things it did was... Um, I mean, I think I was at that point 
really interested in thinking about structures of racism and white supremacy and working in nonprofits with a kind of charity oriented model, like I realized that I was just, you know, bringing critique to work every day and that it wasn't a healthy relationship to, to the job I was doing. Um, but also I did learn, I mean, I was working as a fundraiser, so I learned all of these grant writing skills, which basically have been really central to my work as an academic in terms of funding proposals, fellowship applications, tenure applications, um, all kinds of things. So given the varying experiences that we all have coming into Latina, Latino, Latinx studies and doing this work now at various stages um, in your careers, I'm wondering how situating your research within Latina, Latino, Latinx studies offers a unique tool um, or set of tools or methods to ask and answer questions that more disciplinary approaches may not offer or may not offer in the same ways. So how does tapping into Latina, Latino, Latinx next studies offer the work you do and the questions you research um, seek to address? How, how are those things um, in relationship within the field? Jillian, we can go back around. In my case, right, my, my training is in communication, um, which is always sort of strange because, you know, communication is uh, technically, you know, it's traditionally an interdisciplinary field. Um, but it has been around a lot longer, right, than Latino studies and has been institutionalized for longer than that. And to be perfectly honest, COM largely is, um, is, is very white and has these very kind of normative, right, ideas about um, citizenship in particular in terms of the kind of work that I do. Um, but, but identity overall, right? And so, you know, and there's very kinds of prescribed ways of, of, of going about doing quote-unquote interdisciplinary research within COM. Um, and even though it's interdisciplinary, there are boundaries there. Um, and with Latino studies, I feel like that offers a much more nuanced approach. Um, and I, f you know, I have to say we really benefit from the critique that we get across the spectrum. So, for example, I get people engaging my work who are literary scholars, right, who have their own critiques of my work, which are really useful. Anthropologists, right, who also do ethnography, but perhaps in very different kinds of ways than I do, right, and have a different relationship to ethnography because that that is the method methodology, right, that defines their field. Um, so I think that, you know, for me, Latino studies offers me um, this entryway um, that on the one hand allows me to be much more creative than, it w than I would be able to do if I was just coming at it through a calm perspective. But I have to say it's also really challenging because you also have to be accountable in ways that I don't income. So I, I'll be perfectly honest with you, you know, as I was, you know, I'm finishing up this book tour. I keep saying I'm finishing it and then I do another one. But, <laughs> but, but um, and, you know, the I've had very different audiences. Right. So like on the one hand, I have presented my work in some comm departments. And the kinds of questions they're asking me are really, really different. Um, and most of the time, not as nuanced as the ones that I'm getting within the Latino studies spaces or within like the spaces within Latino communities, like, for example, like at public libraries. Right. Um, and so I think that, you know, I, there's a challenge there that's really important. Right? And there's also accountability within Latino studies in terms of, you know, this has to be accessible to the public. It has to answer questions that people in the Latino community really um, are interested in. Um, and in calm, right, there's not, at least in my experience of that field, there isn't that kind of like deliberate attention, right, to outside of the academy. Hmm. Yeah. 
and we're going to get to some of that stuff later on <laughs> as well. Suzanne, did you want to yeah. go ahead? Well, I think in my case it was a little different because I didn't go into uh, you know graduate school, the PhD, to become a professor. I went to because I really wanted to know and to learn, uh, you know, and to understand. I ended up, it was really by default. I mean, um, I was working in the unions at the time, and a friend of mine said, you know, there's this job, and I was writing the, the dissertation that became the book Ethnic Labels, Latino Lives, and they said, there's a job in Latino studies at Brown. Why don't you just go and see? Mm-hmm. And so I went, um, I was eventually offered the job, and accepted it, and I went to Rhode Island. And so for me, um, it was kind of like discovering that there was this thing called Latino studies that we had to develop. And, and, and it was a question for me. It was a, why is it that Puerto Ricans who are U.S. citizens are not U.S. citizens in in or not acknowledged as U.S. citizens. You know, I had questions. What does it mean to belong when you're treated the way Mexican-Americans were treated, according to my reading, you know, the, the books that I, I had read for the dissertation and stuff? So I never really looked at it in terms of academic disciplines. I looked at it in terms of questions that I, I tried to understand the answers to. And that meant that from the beginning, I was doing interdisciplinary work, certainly in the social sciences. And because there, and I was in the American Studies program, which is, I mean, department, which was an interdisciplinary department. And so that also allowed me to, to explore interdisciplinarity in the field. And um, I remember calling Frances Aparicio and saying to her, I need to teach a course on Latina literature because otherwise the students are not going to get a course on Latina literature here. And um, so we talked about what books and what art, uh, what authors, and so then I started to study the literature, and I, I was originally trained in literature, so it kind of it was a continuation in a way for me. Um, and that's how I... I never really thought about discipline, I guess. Mm. It was much more the questions that were generating. And I think Latino studies is uh, pushed and developed by questions. I think it is the questions that are really, that have really shaped the field, you know? Much more than the method, which would be the social science method or the literature method. I think there are certain ways in which I'm kind of embarrassingly disciplinary in that I really love literature. I love to read. Um, I love to talk about metaphor or enjambment or, you know, all these sort of complex sort of literary formal terms. And I derive great pleasure from it. Um, But I also think about um, something that Jillian said in the Q&A for her talk really resonated with me where she said, um, you know, we can be researchers, but what is our research really for? Um, and I think that for me, there's only so far that that pleasure in the written word can take me if it's not doing something in the world. Um, and I am, I think one of the things that the, the field of 
Latinx studies gives me, um, that would be a much harder thing to kind of claim if I were solely in an English department is that I can be unabashed about like, this is what this literature is for. This is what this literature is doing. Um, and I don't have to defend myself, um, you know, that I'm instrumentalist in my readings of texts, um, And so, I mean, I think about my current project now and I think about how I'm really trying to make an argument that literature can do something about our current healthcare crisis, that um, if we can understand better the root causes of health disparities, um, we can find better answers than we're, we're currently offering. And I think literature can help us help us do that. But I think it's because I work in an interdisciplinary department that I'm, I'm allowed to kind of, or able um, and encouraged to kind of go forth and ask these questions. And I also agree with Jillian that it makes my work better and more rigorous. Like I think that sometimes, you know, people in traditional disciplines will say that we in the interdisciplines are not rigorous. Um, but you know, I can't just go into my department and say, you know, literature is a health intervention because there's a public health scholar in my department, right. Who's really going to hold me accountable. Um, so I think that, that in that sense, my work is better because I'm with people working in different disciplines and my work is interdisciplinary. And so I'm, I'm going to use that as a segue to another one of our questions, um, that deals with thinking about uh, the work that we do beyond the institution. Um, and so this is a question that I've, I've come to call uh, Daryl's Theo or uncle question. Um, and that's thinking about the field or area of study beyond the institution and instead among the various communities we come from, identify with and navigate outside of the university setting. So what do you all see as the value of Latina, Latino, Latinx studies to communities outside of academia? Academia. Um, moreover, how do we do our scholarship in ways that are legible in the academy and at the same time hold ourselves accountable? Th- this thing that you both of you were, um, all of you actually, were talking about to various degrees um, within the communities we come from and communities who we may imagine ourselves doing the work for. Yeah, Suzanne, go ahead. Um, well, I want to talk about that in relation to the work of the journal Latino Studies because. Um, the purpose of that journal, when we first thought about it, was actually to bridge the gap between the production of knowledge and the experience. I mean, the experience of the community and the production of knowledge, right? And it's, I mean, it's true that there is a value for Latin, of Latino studies to the communities, but there's also a value of the uh, experience of the communities for Latino studies, right? I mean, it's not a one-way street at all. And certainly in, in the case of the journal, what we tried to do was to mix the, the information because we got this from the earlier studies programs, right? The Puerto Rican studies and Mexican-American studies. They, those are two disciplinary fields that came out of the communities. And so the idea uh, that Latino studies was formed in the institutions is only a little bit true because it's actually formed in the community and shaped by the community. And I think it's very important to, to look at Latino studies in those terms. 
as much as just as an academic discipline? I, you know, I've been thinking about this question a lot because this is like the 50th anniversary of like everything that's important, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, right. Yeah, large parties, Stonewall, so many civil rights movements. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, in particular, it's the 50th anniversary of the new department that I'm in, right? African and Puerto Rican Latino Studies at Hunter. Um, and that specifically comes out of like student movements, right? Protests, right? To demand, right? For those kinds of um programs, right, and opportunities for people to learn, right, about their particular, about those particular histories. Um, And so I feel very accountable to those demands in 1969 and have found myself asking myself, okay, how do I, how do I keep to this? Because part of those demands is not only the establishments of these programs, but also that they remain accessible, right? Um, And so, you know, that's sort of a question that constantly haunts me. Right. And there's a couple of ways that I've tried to engage with it. And I will say this. I am very fortunate that I teach a student population that I also write for. So I do have a lot of Latino and African-American students in my classrooms. Increasingly, I do have more like Asian-American, Filipino students, by the way, who love the Puerto Rican classes because (laughs) it's the first time they've gotten to think about like empire from both like the U.S. and Spanish context. And there are parallels there. There are differences, but they're able to engage um, in a really substantial way. Um, So I'm very lucky in that sense. I say that because I know there are other places like Iowa, and I certainly have taught in other places that um, that is not necessarily the student population. Right. And so you're 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 teaching um, not necessarily to the audience that you may, you know, have intended right to have captured. Um, At the same time, I think it's really important for us to push. Um, our work outside of scholarly spaces, and I mean literal spaces. So, like, I love that this is taking place at the public library. Um, I, I think just that in and of itself, right, is really amazing. Um, you know, and I remember when I was at Urbana-Champaign, Frances Aparicio, when she was still at the UIC campus, she... Um, you know, she did those series of like community talks where people shared their scholarship in the public libraries. Um, and so I think that, you know, those kinds of projects are really good models, right, for us to think about how can we get our work out there. And of course, that may involve some translation, because I think one of the challenges, um, you know, for me has been in the field, we're expected, right, to use um, jargon and to be like theoretically sophisticated. Um, and it's not that the average person couldn't understand that, but you have to break that stuff down, right? So you have to accept that you're going to have to do a little bit of translation. You're going to have to give people background. You're going to have to define the terms, do all of sort of that setup, right, before you get into the analysis. Um, but I think it's really, really important for us. But I also think it's kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a few years ago, I published for the first time this um, you know, short piece on some research I was doing on Univision and Spanish language television, you know, and it was a critique of it. Um, and talking about Univision really as this like global conglomerate, right? And that is this like teeny tiny random, you know, Spanish language network. Um, and I was freaked out because, you know, it had circulated way more than any of my academic journal articles had, right? And so like there was an accountability <laughs> that I had to have there. And I was having like people's abuelitas like writing me notes. And they weren't necessarily super critical, but it kind of freaked me out because we just don't have readership that way as academics, right? Certainly we do get critique, but it's by other academics, right? right? It's not necessarily the general public. So I think there's also a way, in, a way in which too we have to recognize that there's a vulnerability, I think, involved in that and also a learning curve because most of us are not really trained to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Now I'm thinking there are just like conversations with parents, right? And trying to explain what it is that I do because they're like, me preguntaron qué haces, yo no sé qué decirles. I, you know, they asked me what, what you do. I said, teacher, I guess. <laughs> so really thinking about how, how we communicate the work that we do and, and, but also thinking about those links to, to community in our everyday lives. So I, um, the thing that I keep circling back to as I was kind of thinking about what I was going to say, um, is a kind of fear that what I'm going to say is going to really sound embedded within capitalism, but we are embedded within capitalism. Um, so one of the things that is really important to me, um, and, you know, in my talk today, I talked about, I, I said, if, it, you know, if there's anyone who's here who's inclined to buy a book of poetry, buy the work of Irene Lara Silva. And I think it's really important um, that those of us who have ties to wealthy institutions, right, look for ways to get writers and artists paid um, so that they can keep writing and producing art, um, because a lot of them are doing it, right, working full-time jobs, and we're all losing out when they're not devoting full time to their art. Um, so that's one thing that I think is really important to me. I've also been thinking a lot um, about my orientation towards students because I'm now um, in my second job. So my first job, um, I won't name the institution, but um, the institution was 91% white. Um, and my uh, classes were always over-enrolled because they filled a diversity requirement mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of my students were marketing majors who would come to my classes on Latinx literature to learn how to market to Latino audiences. Um, and, and there I really saw my work uh, being about um, dismantling their professional ambitions. Um, but now I do work in a place uh, where the majority of my students are uh, primarily Mexican-American, primarily from Texas. Um, and primarily first generation students and their parents are, you know, their whole families are sacrificing to get them an education and they're coming to my classes, um, because it's the one elective in, you know, the, the STEM major that they have because they need to get a job, um, and they need to contribute economically to their families. Um, and so I also think it's really important, um, for us to kind of think about, uh, what does, Latinx studies mean to our students and how can we make it viable for them to be Latinx studies students, right? So I'm really invested. I've developed kind of a slate of courses um, around Latinx studies and public health. Um, And the idea of it is uh, to produce more ethical doctors and more ethical health professionals. Um, But also I end up drawing in um, a large population of sort of pre-med Latinx students um, Julie, you're like offering so many perfect segues to the questions. I'm like it's sitting here like, I'm going thank last. you. <laughs> because my next question um, is moving between these different scales, right? So we talked about the institution, we talked about the community, but here I'm wanting us to return to the students. Um, and that we're wondering um, what what you all see as Latina, Latino, Latinx studies providing or making accessible for students at the university? What do courses, minors, majors, graduate certificates in Latina, Latino, Latinx studies offer? Um, And here I'm thinking not only during folks' time at the university setting, right? So when they're wanting to learn how to market to uh, Latina, Latino, Latinx clients, but also beyond. Um, So maybe 
in the workplace or just as human beings in the world. Um, what difference does exposure to Latina, Latino, Latinx studies make? Go for it, Suzanne. Yeah. I think that the most important thing of Latinx studies f- for students is that it gives them more access to who they are. It allows people to be who they are because they are grounded in the knowledge of a past that they share, that they are part of, that they come from, in a way that many students who are Latinx don't have access to, and particularly um, in high schools. And I see that in my classes every year. It's it's impressive, actually, um, how... From this point of view, I mean, there's a course on the civil rights movements of the Latinx civil rights movements that I've been teaching for many, many years, and nothing's changed in terms of the response in this particular sense. You know, I wish I had known this when I was younger. I wish, you know, I wish my little brother or my little sister or, you know, had known. Or I go home after class and, sh- and discuss with my mother. You know, it really makes a difference to people to be able to be in the world, um, you know, grounded in a past mm-hmm. that is their past, but that is bigger than them. Yeah. And for me, that's the most important thing that exposure to Latino studies can do for anybody, for any Latino. And for non-Latinos, I think it's equally important, not only because it makes, you know, non-Latino students, and I'm not just talking about white students, I'm talking about African-American students or Asian-Americans. It does the same for them. Because uh, first, it, it, it gives them a way of looking into their own past if they don't, if they've never taken classes in that subject. Um, it kind of teaches them how to do it, right? How to, you know, you can do this too in relation to your own group or your own history. But it also gives you a point of comparison. You know, like you are similar to this person's history or whatever in this way, that way, or the other way. And you're not in this way, that way, and the other way. And this is the way you can create alliances and bridges. And this is the way you can be part of something bigger than just your own group. And I think that's really important, too, both for Latinos and, uh, you know, Latinx students and also for non-Latinx students. I think, you know, I'm thinking about this uh, in a number of ways, right? So in a, in a very kind of broad stroke um, way, I think that Latino studies offer students the opportunity to do some unlearning. Right. Because in K through 12, they're offered a very particular history of the U.S. Um, that certainly does not talk about it in terms of empire. Right. And so we've given them this larger you know, perspective um, on the U.S. Um, and, and also too, also forcing them to engage in global issues at the same time. Right. Because I am one of those proponents of you cannot understand Latino studies if you don't have kind of a transnational lens. Right. Even if your work is U.S. based. Right. You do have to historically understand that. Um, at the same time, I also, um, you know, I, because I come from, you know, a calm perspective and I taught in a film and media studies program for, you know, over seven years, 
Um, I feel like a lot of the work that we did in my courses was around ethics, you know, and I'm trained, you know, and I was training media producers, many of them today are media producers, and those are our storytellers today, right? And, and, you know, and teaching them about the fact that they have a power, right? Um, In terms of, of developing these narratives and circulating these narratives. So for me, that was, that's really, really important. And I used to argue in my old department that our comm students cannot go without taking, um, you know, one of those courses dealing with those questions of race and ethnicity, because otherwise we're sending them out into the world and they're not fully ready, right? To sketch out um, sort of the fullness of humanity, right? In the stories that they create. And then on another level, I also feel on a practical level, in many professions, I don't understand how Latino studies wouldn't be relevant. So, for example, I have a lot of students who are social work students and who are education students who have come to me afterward and realized, wait, why is this not a required course? This is, like, central to the work that I'm going to do. And some of that is geographic, too. I live in New York City, right? And so and our students are from New York City, and that's probably where they will be working. So, actually, it, it, it would be... Um, you know, it behooves them, right, to, to learn about Latino communities because those are the people they are going to be working with. Um, so, you know, for me, I, I, in some ways, I don't see how, Lat- I, I don't never understand the argument about why Latino studies isn't important or significant um, because it's not only important just from this larger kind of perspective of um, you growing as a human being, right, and your understanding of the world and your place within it, but also, too, in terms of practice, right, in terms of how people um, play out their roles as professionals, right, within, you know, specific communities. So, um, unfortunately, I think I gave my best answer to the last <laughs> question, um, but I want to echo what Jillian said about unlearning, because I, I just think that that is so important. And I think about it all the time, um, teaching in Texas, um, so teaching in a place that was Mexico, um, where many of my students, uh, whether they are of Mexican descent or not, like haven't fully grappled with that because the K through 12 system is designed to keep them from grappling with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that, that is really important work. Um, I think I'll stop there um, and okay. let you ask more questions. Yeah. So I have one last question. Um, so lastly, and this is something that perhaps I feel like tis the season of this time in the semester in Iowa. Um, but I feel like I've personally been seeing and needing to address um, of late with students. And that's around the topic of not only surviving, but thriving at a university, specifically a predominantly white institution. Um, and so with that in mind, we're wondering what your message might be to a Latina, Latino, Latinx listener um, at a predominantly white institution that may feel like they don't belong. And it can be more than one thing. I think I would say, first of all, that look for other people. You find your community. And if you are, if, if you really, really, really can't find your community at your institution, which usually, you know, there are some Latino students usually there, go into the community and find your community there. But make sure that you're not doing this by yourself. Um, I would say to look for, for professors that support you. They, if, if you are, happen to be in an institution where you don't have Latino studies professors, although today, unlike 20 years ago, it's more rare. It still happens, I believe. 
then, you know, try try African American professors, try uh, white professors, try people who understand the the your issues, that understand who you are, that under you know they may not be Latino, but they know and they understand, and they will support you. Don't try to do it by yourself. Um, you know, I would echo that, even if it means that it's just one person, right? You need to have a relationship with somebody. You cannot do this alone, right? That's a big part of it. Um, I think that, you know, also to, uh, I think that reading is important, believe it or not. I think that one of the ways in which a lot of people cope with being the only one to is having these larger connections, right? And I will say this, like, and I'm sure Julie would agree with me, that reading literature, right, can be really, really helpful, right, in that capacity um, in terms of sort of, um, you know, reminding you of your humanity and reminding you that you're not alone, Um, you know. And... You know, the last thing that I would say is just try to take very good care of yourself. I mean, at this point in the semester, this is when I see students getting very sick physically, when their anxiety ramps up. Um, And also, you know, um, I really don't mean this in the neoliberal self-care sense. Um, So I hope it's not taken this way. Um, But also to remember to not take so much of this personally and to remember, you know, that racism is structural. Right. Because we sort of can get lost in that and internalize that. And it's really important to remind ourselves like, okay, this is not about me. Right. We're dealing with these larger kind of like racist, xenophobic ideologies. Right. And yes, people are mapping that onto me and my body. Um, But there there are much bigger issues, you know, happening here. And people are just kind of, you know, they're playing out scripts. Right. They're performing scripts. So I think it's, you know, important to, you know, always remind ourselves of that of that, too, because if not, that it it can it can feel like you're constantly having sort of like symbolic violence, right, being placed on you. So just as that is a reminder. I often tell students in my office hours that it feels hard because it is hard. Um, It doesn't feel hard because you're not equipped. It feels hard because there are forces and structures and systems that are making it hard for you. Um, And so learn to recognize those things and learn to understand um, that it's not your individual failings. Um, And, you know, you have the right to have professors pronounce your name correctly, right? It's not because your name is hard to pronounce. It's because that professor is uneducated, right? Um, So very basic things um, that are telling you, like, look at the things that are telling you you don't belong and realize Um, that those things are the product of colonial, capitalist, white supremacist histories, and they're built there for a reason, but they're not your fault. And they don't say anything about you or your capabilities. Well, thank you so much. Um, And with that, um, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. And if we could get a round of applause for our guests. So to our listeners, we would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and about any of the programming we are doing. You can contact us through Twitter at Imagining Lat or drop us a line through email at podcast at imaginingLatinidades.com. If you've listened to the podcast before, you know that this is the part of the recording where we once again ask you to please share the podcast with friends and to please consider giving us five stars on Apple Podcast or rating us highly on your podcast streaming app of choice. Good ratings and reviews help to expose us to more people and may 
be um, even get us on some of those curated podcast lists, which of course helps us to reach uh, more listeners. So please consider sharing and rating highly. Um, Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check the show notes for any links or resources discussed, and we will talk to you all soon. Thanks. (laughs) 